Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today, and I'm so happy to see Bacha Ungar Sargon, though regrettably, you're back in New York. Yes, very sad not to be with you in person, Robbie. Oh, well, well, we have a great show today. Let's get straight to the news. What's going on, Bacha? So former President Donald Trump and Kanye West are back on Twitter. We'll discuss Elon Musk's latest changes to the platform later in the show. Plus, Republican House leadership say they plan to begin investigations into Hunter Biden this January. We'll discuss that coming up. But first, the end of an era. Nancy Pelosi will not enter a bid for Speaker of the House in the next Congress, representing the biggest shakeup in House Democratic leadership since 2006. The speaker made the news official during a speech last Thursday. Let's take a look. My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues have bestowed upon me, speaker, leader, whip, there is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. On Friday, Representative Hakeem Jeffries shared that he would seek the speakership, confirming years of speculation. The New York Democrat said his candidacy is based on three operating principles, empowering every member, prioritizing lawmaker security, and then reclaiming the majority. Joining Jeffries as part of the new guard of House Democratic leadership are Catherine Clark of Massachusetts, who's vying for House Minority Leader after Cindy Hoyer announced that he would be leaving the role, and also Pete Aguilar of California, who's seeking the number three spot of caucus chair. All are under 60 years old. These three new leaders are expected to usher in a newer, younger, and fresher generation of House Democratic leadership. Imagine that. In a statement endorsing the new guard on Friday, Pelosi wrote in the 118th Congress, House Democrats will be led by a trio that reflects the beautiful diversity of our nation. Chair Jeffries, Assistant Speaker Clark, Vice Chair Aguilar know that in our caucus, diversity is our strength and unity is our power. So, Bacha, you are New York-based. Uh, what should we know about Hakeem Jeffries? Which way does he lean ideologically? So he's a very popular uh, politician. He's a sort of classic member of the Congressional Black Caucus. He has actually had tension with the progressive wing. Um, I believe that uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez initially said she was going to support a primary challenger to him. I don't think it eventually materialized, but he has had no problem sort of speaking up and exoriating the progressive wing for going too far to the left. So he sort of represents much more of a moderate establishment Democrat. Um, I think he's a really smart choice, but I have to say, Robbie, when I look at Speaker Pelosi right now, um, I, I, she really makes me think that age is just a number because... You know, yes, she's in her 80s, right? She's old. It's important to have a younger um, generation of politicians stepping up. But boy, is that woman still in control of of, of that caucus? She really yeah. does exert herself in a way that I just find very inspiring. I mean, I don't I don't agree with her ideologically about pretty mm -hmm. much anything. But I to look at a woman in her 80s who's still so clearly in control of everything that's happening around her, I do. I find it very inspiring. 
I find it inspiring that she's finally ready to give up her power, <laughs> let a new generation take over, which is something that parties need to do because they have so many um, elderly people in positions of power and influence on all sides at this point. Well, let's get to the Republican side of the House. So expected Speaker Kevin McCarthy said he plans to bar certain Democrats from serving on committees. Let's watch. You've talked in the past about removing Elon uh, Omar. You've talked about removing Adam Schiff, about Eric Swalwell. Will you deliver? Yes, I will. I'll keep that promise. And one thing I said from the very beginning, Eric Swalwell cannot get a security clearance in the public sector. Why would we ever give him a security clearance in the secrets to America? So I will not allow him to be on intel. You have Adam Schiff, who had lied to the American public time and again. We will not allow him to be on the Intel Committee either. And you look at Congresswoman Omar, her anti-Semitic comments that have gone forward. We're not going to allow her to be on foreign affairs. Hmm. What do you make of this, Bacha? So I understand the point about Eric Swalwell, uh, because it's a special kind of uh, exceptional security issue him, his tie to this um, this figure who was uh, uh, believed to be a, a, a compromised from China, et cetera. Um, Adam Schiff, I, I think it's more a case of he's a politico. I, I, I do disagree with him. I think he was wrong. I don't know that that's different than any other Democrat who you might have a political dispute with or a Republican you'd have a political dispute with if you were a Democrat. Ilan Omar has made statements uh, that I do think were anti-Semitic. Um, she's apologized for them. I don't know how common it is to just kind of bar people wholesale from serving on committees. I know there were, there were Republicans who Republicans did not let serve on committees due to anti-Semitic remarks. So maybe it's you know, within keeping uh, in that tradition. Um, I don't know how I feel about it overall. So I, we knew this was coming. The minute they booted Marjorie Taylor Greene from her right. committee assignments, we knew that as soon as the Republicans retook the House, they were going to be in full-on revenge mode. And that's what they're doing here. Um, you know, it, it, the, the, the Republicans booted Steve King from right. Iowa from his assignments because he had said, what is wrong with being a white nationalist? And I thought that was very appropriate to take somebody from your own caucus and boot them. I totally agree with you that this is very, it seems very ideologically motivated, very partisan. I think it's very in keeping with the first thing they did after the midterms and the minute they took the House was announced, um, you know, this investigation into Hunter Biden. They are in revenge mode, tit for tat, everything they did to Trump and to Republicans when, when Democrats had, had the power, they're now going to do back to them. And I just honestly, I, I feel very, um, a little bit disgusted with it, to be honest. This is not what, what the American people need right now. Uh -huh. None of this is going to put gas in our cars. None of this is going to bring down the price of chicken. Yeah, it's one thing for a political party to police its own members, uh, which I think is a good idea. I, I'm glad when Democrats and Republicans both do a little bit of gatekeeping to keep very fringe figures uh, or, or people who say just kind of insane things and actually punish them internally. Um, when you just do it to the other side, it seems very right political. I agree with tit for tat is a really good way of describing it. It seems like it, it's going to get us to a less healthy and productive um, place. And then, you know, also always overlooking the fact that, you know, whatever you think of 
some of these representatives, including both Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ilan Omar. You know, we've had Ilan Omar on the show before. Um, she at least, she was voicing opposition when we, we had her on to endless funding of Ukraine. Marjorie Taylor Greene has been, and again, I, I disagree with a lot of things she says. I think a lot of things she says are not great or the way she phrases them, but she's been w one of the most vocal about the need to kind of change course in that uh, in that conflict. So I don't know what it says that, you know, is then is it just the establishment punishing, you know, dissenters or people who have different ideas on some of these subjects, different ideas that might actually be more in keeping with what the American people think. So uh, so the the kind of inclination to root out heretics um, can, I think, just benefit a kind of uh, uh, consensus or a manufactured consensus that uh, can be very harmful to our democracy. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I am excited, Robbie, to hear what is on your radar next. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, the public is only beginning to understand the extent of the crimes committed by Sam Bankman-Fried, a cryptocurrency entrepreneur who lost billions of dollars after his exchange, FTX, was revealed to be a Ponzi scheme. Sam Bankman-Fried, better known as SBF, has seen his net worth plunge from $10 billion to effectively nothing in the course of a few days. He's declared bankruptcy, was recently questioned by the police in the Bahamas, where he resides, etc., John Ray III, who was brought in to manage Enron following that company's destruction, is now the CEO of FTX. In a court filing last week, he said he has never seen such a, quote, complete failure of corporate control, including at Enron. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented, he said. SPF engaged in extreme levels of deception to trick people into thinking his crypto exchange was worth more than it actually was. He effectively paid investors, employees, and vendors shares of the company his, through his token, FTT, and loaned it out to his quantitative investment firm, Alameda Research. The company seemed like it was worth more than it actually was at the end of the day. So this was an elaborate house of cards that fooled investors, celebrities, Democratic politicians, here's SBF interviewing Bill Clinton and Tony Blair at a crypto conference that he put on earlier this year. Indeed, SBF had aspirations to play in Democratic Party politics. This election cycle, he was the second most prolific funder of Democratic candidates after George Soros. I talked about that on my radar last week, of course, but here's some new news. Not only was he a funder of Democratic political causes, he was also a funder of progressive and mainstream media. According to the journalist Teddy Schleifer, SBF gave money to Vox Media, the progressive news explainer website created by liberal bloggers Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias. Vox also owns the New York Magazine. SBF made a grant to our friends at The Intercept. That publication received $500,000 a few months ago, had another $250,000 on the way, and was due to receive $3.25 million from SBF in coming years. Acting Editor-in-Chief Ryan Hodge notes that SBF's bankruptcy will leave The Intercept with a significant hole in its budget and has asked readers to consider making donations. SBF gave money to Semaphore, a new journalism project created by Ben Smith, formerly the media columnist at The New York Times, and before that, the Editor-in-Chief of BuzzFeed. And he was in the, SBF was in the process of giving $5 million to ProPublica. 
Now, ostensibly, this was in support of research to understand the COVID-19 pandemic and to prevent future pandemics. And to be clear, I believe that much of the pandemic-related journalism done by ProPublica, The Intercept, and other SBF-backed outlets is of high quality. We've cited it on this show. But SBF's own attitude toward his funding seems to be that it's all for show, that it's a front, literally. Here's how he described ethics in private messages with a Vox reporter. When asked if ethics is mostly a front, SBF replied, yeah, that's not all of it, but it's a lot. So in that case, what did he think he was buying with all his millions that he spent on media companies? Well, here's one answer, favorable coverage. And boy, did he get what he wanted. If you scrutinize the mainstream media, you'll find that SBF was drowning in gushing magazine profiles. Importantly, the news of his vast fraud and deception has not completely ended the favorable coverage. He's now benefiting from what I would describe as soft coverage. The mainstream media is treating him the way they would treat one of their friends, someone they like. Maybe he did some bad things, but hey, his heart was in the right place, wasn't it? The New York Times report on this disaster uses passive, soft language to disguise blame at every turn. The headline says it all. How Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto empire collapsed. Mr. Bankman-Fried said in an interview that he had expanded too fast, failed to see warning signs, but he shared few details about his handling of FTX's customers' funds. Expanded too fast? Failed to see warning signs, flew too close to the sun. He defrauded people out of millions and billions of dollars. The empire didn't collapse of its own accord. It collapsed because he built it out of fraudulent materials. And then in a recent Substack post on SBF, uh, Matt Iglesias noted that he had a meeting with SBF and declined a business opportunity with him, even though they share a similar philosophy called effective altruism. Iglesias' coverage of this of this the SBF uh, crypto collapse spotlights the fact that without SBF's lavish funding of Democratic causes, quote, it's plausible Trump would still be in the White House. Those are some kind words for someone whose vast, whose crimes are so vast, alleged crimes. And uh, I, I think it's worth wondering how much of this spending on media was exactly what SBF is, is now claiming in those leaked DMs, sort of that it was a front um, and that it was in order to inspire favorable coverage. So uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they didn't receive money, as far as we know, from SBF. But these are outlets that have had apocalyptic coverage of tech ventures. The New York Times, their reporting on tech makes it sound like every new development, the clubhouse, Twitter, Facebook, corrupting our democracies, the threat of, of, of those billionaires and how they'll spread misinformation, etc. When it came to this guy, it was pretty blasé, and it still is. I don't get it. What do you think, Bacha? All right. So I, I, the thing you're pointing out, <clears throat> that two things happened. He gave money to media companies and to Democratic politicians, and that he's gotten favorable, favorable coverage and a real lack of oversight and soft peddling. Those are both true. And I, it, you're right that the Occam's razor explanation is that one led to the other. But I'm going to try to make the argument that they didn't, because just from working in a newsroom, um, you know, the way that it works is, you know, your boss doesn't come to you and say, hey, we got this money from this guy. Therefore, the coverage should look like this. I think what happened is, is that the billionaire class and the media class, as it's composed now from leftist elites and the Democratic Party 
have class solidarity. So I, I don't think that the money is right. buying the coverage or the treatment. I think that they all have common interests, which are the common interests of rich liberal people. And yeah. so I think it's a little bit less conspiratorial, but what I applaud you for, for covering this and for pointing to yeah, it because I, yes, the coverage is insane. <laughs> right. And I, and I take that, you know, I want to be very careful with what I'm claiming here because I work for a magazine, a nonprofit magazine reason that receives donations that I feel like we're often accused of like, oh, you're just doing what your right. corporate master or your, your rich masters are telling you to do. I feel like I get that criticism a lot from people in progressive media who also have their own funders <laughs> and like, well, are you saying you just do whatever they tell you to do. So I absolutely uh, take your point. I'm just trying to square the treatment, uh, like specifically the New York Times, how they talk about SBF versus Mark Zuckerberg. And it's it's just, it's it's interesting. It doesn't quite add up to me. You're, you're right that it's not like, oh, so it's more someone gives you funding because they agree with your mission. They like your mission and want to support you. It's not so much we're telling you what to do. But it's clear that this guy did a good job of making him seem like a hero to a lot of journalists who are otherwise very discerning. In some cases, I think almost too critical of, uh, of, of some other figures in, in related fields. So it's, uh, it's interesting and we're yeah. going to continue to unravel it because man there was a lot of spending um, every every which way but we'll have more rising right after this Bacha, what's on your radar well he did it elon musk founder of tesla and spacex twitter addict and most recently controversial twitter owner reinstated former President Donald Trump's Twitter account after conducting a Twitter poll that gave the decision a three-point margin in favor. By the time the poll closed, fully 15 million Twitter users had weighed in. Yours truly included. Trump was banned from Twitter for tweeting encouragement to protesters on January 6, after which some 700 stormed the Capitol and violently clashed with Capitol Police officers. Vox Populi, Vox Dei, Musk tweeted announcing the decision. The voice of the people is the voice of God. The reaction was swift from the usual suspects. Members of the leftist blue check brigade began their by now regular announcements that this time they're really, really leaving Twitter, but this time for real. Others committed to staying in the name of the good fight, while others still dusted off the full on hysteria usually reserved for Trump. CBS News suspended all Twitter activity and protests, though they came back just hours later. How many Americans will die because of Elon Musk brought real Donald Trump back on Twitter, asked David Levitt. For Elon Musk to allow Donald Trump back on Twitter ostensibly after a brief poll shows he is not remotely serious about safeguarding the platform from hate, harassment and misinformation, tweeted the ADL's Jonathan Greenblatt. The prevailing opinion among free speech absolutists appears to be that this platform, in order to become healthy, must helplessly publish the malicious lies of any maniac at scale, regardless of the consequences. Good luck with that, tweeted Sam Harris. And all this over allowing a former president to post 280 character notes on a social media platform. But this tantrum over Trump being reinstated was only the latest in a series since Musk bought the platform, indeed, since he announced his interest to purchase Twitter. The liberal and leftist Twitterati have been accusing him of seeking to platform extremists and terrorists and disinformation spreaders and other sundry threats to democracy which is how they tend to label conservative or even centrist Twitter accounts, the kind that were routinely shadow banned and deplatformed under the old Twitter regime. 
Once he took over, Musk came up with a plan to charge users $8 a month for the coveted blue check marks that have historically been the privilege of political and media elites, leading people like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to declare the platform unusable after the riffraff were allowed to purchase their way into the hallowed grounds of her verified mentions. That plan is now on hold, but Musk drew further ire for firing half of Twitter's staff. And on Friday, hundreds more Twitter employees quit after a memo from Musk demanding long hours at high intensity as a condition of remaining employed. Musk told his new employees that they had to commit to becoming, quote, extremely hardcore or leave. He also sent managers an email in which he demanded that people show up to work in person and failure to do so once a month could result in getting fired. Many chose to leave rather than commit to hard work in person with the full support of the kind of Twitter users who make it their business to publicly hate on Elon Musk's guts. For much of Thursday night, many were gleefully predicting that the absence of workers meant Twitter would be gone by Friday morning. Thousands of tweeters spent the night typing out tearful goodbyes to their beloved followers only to find themselves having to threaten to quit Twitter Saturday night when the platform was still around, now with Donald Trump back on it. But those more sympathetic to Musk pointed out that many social media companies are in firing mode, shedding the excess workforce hired during the glut of the venture capital years when companies weren't expected to turn a profit. Facebook, for example, recently fired 11,000 workers. A TikTok video showing a day in the life of a Twitter employee gives you a good feel for where this perspective is coming from. Let's watch it. So quickly, welcome to a day in my life as a Twitter employee. So this past week went to SF for the first time at a Twitter office, badged in, honestly took a moment to just soak everything in. What a blessing. Also started my morning off with an iced matcha from the perch. Then I had a meeting, so quickly scheduled one of these little pod rooms, which were so cool. They're literally noise canceling. Took my meeting, got ready for bunch. Look how delicious this food looks. Oh my goodness, I was so overwhelmed. Then made my way down to this log cabin area. I don't know what this is, but it was really cool. Played some foosball with my friends to kind of unwind a bit. Um, also found this really cool meditation room that I thought was super neat. Um, I didn't do any yoga, but they have this yoga room if you are a yogi, so also thought that was really cool. Um, had a couple more meetings in the afternoon, had a ton of projects that we needed to knock out. Say hey to my teammates. Um, <laughs> went, to the, went to the library to kind of get some more work done. Obviously had to have our afternoon coffee, so made some espresso. And then before leaving for the day, had some red wine um, that's on tap. It's just one video, and we don't know what this woman gets paid to take two meetings, doing, quote, a ton of projects and spend the rest of the day playing foosball, drinking matcha and meditating. But we do know the median base salary at Twitter is $162,000 a year. And for many working class Americans, the video perfectly encapsulates the, quote, labor of the professional managerial class whose wages outpace theirs by leaps and bounds for work that can be done at home in pajama bottoms or in between rounds of yoga. There is no denying that the people quitting Twitter have the privilege of walking away from a $162,000 a year job when their boss demands that they 
show up. Moreover, they were immediately invited to apply to business school without taking the requisite entrance exams. Retraining and new lucrative jobs are just around the corner. Compare this to the millions of working class Americans who struggle to get the retraining they need to get good jobs, and you'll get an idea for why the view that these people are victims is so grating to some. In other words, Elon Musk demanding people come to the office once a month wasn't just a threat to the pajama cast lifestyle. It was an affront to their privileged position in society. This is the argument Charles Stallworth, a union railroad worker, made at Newsweek last week. Quote, it's hard to explain to people in the laptop class just how bizarre this all sounds to blue collar workers, Charles writes. You're being asked to show up to work and you tell your boss no, and you're the victim here? This just isn't stuff we could imagine getting away with. We have to get dressed and drive to work and pay exorbitant gas prices to do so. We have to sit in traffic in the morning or take crime-addled public transportation. We don't have the luxury of sitting at home in pajama bottoms. Indeed. And yet for the crime of sharing his perspective and exposing the privilege of the laptop cast, Charles, who is black, was called a Nazi, an extremist, and out of his league for daring to have an opinion. Quote, maybe stick to working on the railroad instead of writing for the elites at Newsweek was one typical reply, while others lectured him about not knowing from hard work and long hours. Twitter employees are the real proletariat. Who knew? Here's the problem. In the domestic arena, it's impossible not to root for Musk as he pokes the leftist elites who have gotten used to controlling the public square and using their power and privilege to wage war on the working class and silence dissent. Yet, to see Musk as a champion for the working class or even for free speech would be a mistake for the simple reason that his other businesses are deeply deeply tied to the Chinese Communist Party in a way that compromises him and makes it impossible not to think that Twitter will eventually be compromised too. Musk is famous for bending the knee to China, and while many major corporations have a horrible record of acquiescing to China's requests for censorship and surveillance, Musk has truly gone above and beyond, issuing groveling apologies and obsequious praise to the CCP, and perhaps worst of all, building a showroom for Tesla in the Xinjiang region where China is perpetrating a genocide of Uyghur Muslims. He also bowed to pressure to store data collected by his electric cars in mainland China where it is subject to CCP surveillance. Musk has done more to normalize China's human rights abuses in the United States than perhaps anyone else. He may be the richest man in the world, but he's also the man whose fortune is most dependent on China and China's largesse. The real danger with Musk taking over Twitter has never been that it will turn into Gab or Parler, but that it will turn into WeChat, the social media app China uses to surveil its citizens. That's the real problem with Elon Musk. We might be enjoying him taking on the professional managerial cast and exposing their hypocrisy, their privilege and their pretensions. But so is the Chinese Communist Party because it gets them one step closer to controlling the public square in America. It's a question I put to FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr last week. Here's what he had to say. Elon Musk, right, owner and, and CEO of, of Twitter currently. This is a man who is deeply connected to China, deeply connected to the Chinese Communist Party. You know, his entire supply chain is in China. All of the batteries for Tesla are, are, are created there. Um, he built a showroom for Tesla in the Xinjiang region where the genocide of the Uyghurs is happening. So this is a man who is very, very 
into bending the knee to China. I mean, isn't there a worry? Don't the same worries that apply to TikTok to some degree apply now to Twitter as well? Well, I think Elon Musk has staked out a pretty clear line that he's going to be pro-free speech, pro-diversity of opinions. But to your point, there's a lot of people that are critical of him, whether it's the, the points that you raised there uh, or people worried about him having too much control over the free flow of information on Twitter. And that's why my position has been we should not simply rely on the hopefully benevolence of a billionaire when it comes to a social media platform like this that is effectively the digital town square. That's why my position has always been we need to step in. I think Congress needs to with pro-speech guardrails to protect diversity of opinions on Twitter, on social media. And I think that would mitigate or address entirely these types of concerns that are being raised. Now, whether or not you think it's the government's role to intervene here, I, I do think that he is right. We should not be relying on the benevolence of a billionaire to protect our town square. Musk exposes both the gross hypocrisy of the overeducated elites and the danger of a supply chain that's rooted in a repressive regime. And that's the real problem with rooting for Musk, the guy who exposes the hypocrisy of these progressive elites who manages to get them to voluntarily tell on themselves and type out the words, stick to working on the railroad, is not beholden to progressive elites because he's beholden to something much worse. So what is your take on all of this, Robbie? How did you feel seeing Donald Trump, you know, at least his Twitter account be reinstated if not his first tweets show up yet? You know, the interesting thing is that, well, I have no problem with Donald Trump being brought back to Twitter and agree, I think intuitively, that uh, a major candidate for political office uh, should have Twitter as an option for communicating with his uh, with prospective voters, um, the vote to bring him back was very odd to me because either it's a free speech issue, in which case we don't vote on those; those are fundamental issues. So this raises the possibility: Are we going to hold like public votes on who to let on Twitter, or then who to ban, who to ostracize? Uh, which which that's not free speech at all. I mean, the First Amendment it protects unpopular speech specifically so that Democratic majority, I mean, majorities in Democratic in the small D sense, not the political party, uh, could not ban speech they don't like. So I think doing it this way actually raises many, many more questions and indeed troubling ones. But uh, we'll have to see uh, where it goes from here. Thank you so much for your thoughts on that, Batya. And we'll have more rising right after this. The Department of Justice announced a special counsel for Donald Trump-related Mar-a-Lago and January 6 criminal investigations. Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a statement on Friday, based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Two reports analyzing two different criminal investigations into Trump have reached the conclusion that there is enough evidence to bring charges against him. One probe is examining the former president's actions in Georgia leading up to January 6th, and the other is led by the Justice Department as it explores the mishandling of sensitive government documents at Mar-a-Lago. And so the fact that, you know, Trump is a candidate, I, I suppose, makes the federal government think there's more, uh, I guess, more at stake to investigating him over, over these things. As to the former, you know, my view has always kind of been, I absolutely hold Trump, you know, responsible for what happened on January 6th. And the proper thing to do uh, in that 
in that situation was for him to be impeached and removed from office. He wasn't. That was a kind of acquittal, in my view. So I'm not sure why continuing to you know, explore all of that stuff. Very bad. But at some point, it's for voters then. It was for the Senate. They didn't reject him. So then it's for voters to reject him or not. It's not really for law enforcement to kind of tip the scales. Now, the Mar-a-Lago thing might end up being different. We're still kind of trying to understand uh, what happened there, whether to the extent to which sensitive uh, government documents that were not declassified could be taken, even though, you know, he has vast declassifying powers. So I don't know. For so long, the media has promised that, well, this will be the end of Trump. Eventually, he's going to be prosecuted for, for all these wrongdoings. I've always kind of taken the view that, look, the, the voters are going to have to reject him if you want him dealt with. And in some sense, they have rejected him. They, they voted uh, not to elect him president a second time. Um, I, I think this election was actually a pretty striking rebuke of Trump on, on many fronts in that the candidates who most cling to what he wanted lost the most humiliatingly. So I, I, that seems to be the you know, direction we're taking with Trump. Now, whether there's some shortcut for, for law enforcement or the government, we'll, we'll see. But um, I don't have a lot of faith, and I know a lot of Americans don't have faith in the institutions like the FBI, like law enforcement, because there are examples now of, of really um, unfair or partisan. You know, these are not impartial organizations. They're not perceived to be that way, and I understand why Americans feel that way. But what's your take? No, I, I agree with you, Robbie. I, I, just, I just do not understand why this is necessary, especially at this moment when voters are in the midst of repudiating Trump, specifically over destroying his own legacy with his January 6th behavior and his behavior ever since then. I just think that there, there's just such an error here. You know, a president, a former president, he's not just a person. He is a representation of the votes of the millions and millions and millions of Americans who chose him as the head of the body politic in this country. And the damage that is done to the perception of our democracy with things like this, I just think you can't overstate that. You know, the side that is so obsessed with democracy, this democracy, that, um, are undermining it because they are undermining the ability of their political rivals and voters who choose differently than them to have trust in the system, to have trust in the institutions. You know, it, I could it's obviously no one's above the law. If Trump mm -hmm. was accused of killing somebody, like you would, you would want law enforcement to step in. But we know what happened on January 6th. We had, I mean, we had that whole investigation. We know blow by blow, minute by minute, what he did. We know the failures of his character. We know the failures of his leadership. I totally agree with you at this point. It is up to the voters to decide. And about the documents at Mar-a-Lago, my gosh, like, come on. Like, that was Trump clinging on to something that he believed was his and, like, the toddler that he is in his heart refusing to give it up because mm. it's mine, right? I mean, like, we know him. We know his character at this point. There's no mysteries, as far as I can tell, that are left that would justify this kind of behavior. Hmm. Well, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan weighed in on Trump's waning popularity when asked what 2024 will look like if Trump's on the ticket. 
I don't think he'll win. He's just I think unelectable. That, I think he's unelectable because that suburban voter, you think he's more popular since the 28 election with the swing voter in America or less? No evidence of that at all. Yeah. But he does seem to have a hold on a good chunk of the Republican Party, whether or not it's a majority, uh, we'll see. That's right. But I think, I think he's going to continue to lose altitude because we want to win. And we know with him we lose. We have a string of losses to prove that point. And there are a lot of really good, capable conservatives who people, I think, like. Uh, that are more than capable of not only being good conservatives in office, but can win elections. I, I, I was not an ever Trumper. Uh, you worked with a speaker. Me. I mean, I, worked, yeah, yeah. I, I was. I, I governed with them, and I'm very proud of those days. I'm proud yeah. of the accomplishments of the tax reform, the deregulation, of criminal justice reform. I'm really excited about the judges we got on the bench, not just the Supreme Court, but throughout the judiciary. But I am a never again Trumper. Why? Because I want to win. At the Republican Jewish Coalition Conference in Las Vegas this weekend, a slew of Republicans signify that they will be moving forward to run in 2024 after Trump's campaign announcement. Some of these names include Trump's UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, Trump's Secretary of State and CIA Director Mike Pompeo, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. And on the topic of 2024, Nikki Haley said on Saturday that she's, quote, never lost an election and is looking at a run for president in a, quote, serious way. Um, here's my thing with this, Robbie. I think that the uh, Paul Ryan wing of the Republican Party, the Republican Party, as it was before Trump kind of took an ax to it, they're desperate to move on from him, not just because of, you know, Trump the man, but I think they are desperate to move on from the insight he brought into the class war in America and the abandonment of the working class. He really put their interests from an economic point of view front and center. And there are those within the Republican coalition who are just desperate to erase that impact. And I think that is the divide you're gonna see um, as 2024 starts to approach, is which candidates are going to take Trump's insight that the working class has been abandoned and forgotten and is desperate for change and run with it, and which ones are gonna try to drag the party back to its sort of pre-Trump free market days where it was the donor class that really determined everything as opposed to the voter class. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough observation, though I don't think Paul Ryan's political calculus there is wrong. I think he's correct that there are not enough people in the country who are going to vote for Donald Trump. His observation, there's no way Donald Trump becomes more or better liked among independent swing voters, Democrats, et cetera. He's, he's right. It's not, that ship is only sailing in one direction. So they really do need to find someone else. But the interesting thing is here, look, Nikki Haley, uh, Pompeo, uh, Sununu, perpetual candidate Chris Christie, Look, if you crowd that field the same way you did in uh, that, that would be the swiftest way to get Trump again is if you have 13 people up mm -hmm. on stage. Uh, people really don't want Trump to be the nomination. They should bow out because it's like, let's be honest with ourselves. It's going to be Trump or it's going to be DeSantis. I, I find it ludicrous, the idea that one of these other things, these kind of perpetual, um, respectable conservative types like Nikki Haley, 
I, I don't think there's actually really a constituency for her either. Um, it, it's it's going to be DeSantis or it's going to be Trump. Anybody else getting up there, if they really want Trump gone at all costs, they should not run. That's like that's just that's just the reality. Um, it, how, I could be wrong, but that's how I see it. Um, obviously, we'll have to see. But you, do you think, Bachi, there's no way. You don't think, like, Chris Christie has a, you know, snowball's chance in hell of being the Republican candidate for president in the next election cycle, do you? No, I agree with your analysis. The problem is, is there's no downside to running for president, yeah. right? It's sort of a big career boost. And so for a politician who maybe, you know, is ambivalent about whether Trump is the nominee or not, you know, they're, they're sure they're not going to be the nominee. Uh, you know, there's very little incentive to bow out. They're, um, but they're running for cable news contributor deals. That's what yes, they're running exactly, for. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And we'll have more rising right after this. Republicans are gearing to take over as the majority in the House, and on deck are probes into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Here's a snippet of what House Oversight Committee ranking member James Comer said last week. We have repeatedly called on the Biden Treasury Department to release additional financial documents to committee Republicans, but thus far Treasury has refused. We want to know what the Biden administration is trying to hide from the American people and why they are not being transparent. In question is Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings, but the GOP's ultimate goal is to unveil whether the president is linked and how much he knew. So I, I think maybe you're a bit more skeptical of the of doing this, Bacha, than I am. Look, I, I take it that... So this is something that the Republican base, it matters to them, and Republicans ran on doing this. So to the extent that they won the House, I think they have to deliver on their promise to hold some hearings here. And I do have uh, questions almost more so now about the FBI's handling of this, um, you know, why law enforcement uh, thought there was nothing to the laptop story, uh, the, ev the evidence that has emerged, some whistleblowers saying that they slow walked an investigation here because they didn't want to interfere with the election. Those are a lot of very worrying questions to me. Um, and then, of course, if there's, you know, we want to know, and if there's some basis to think that, uh, that uh, there was an influence campaign, that Joe Biden was influenced by Hunter Biden, there was something untoward and improper there. No one has established that yet, but it could be the case. That said, is this more of a media fascination or, or a, a conservative fascination than something that, you know, everyday people are really paying rapt attention to? So I think the polling shows that Republican voters are sort of split evenly on this issue. To me, it is just such a huge distraction from what the Republicans were put in office to do. And it is exactly why they didn't get a bigger margin of victory in the midterms, because Americans are screaming out for action on inflation, on they want good jobs, on crime, on immigration. And what do they get? They get, you know, basically revenge uh, investigation investigations into the president's son. Now, obviously, Hunter Biden is a deeply corrupt crack addict. Like there's no there's no dispute about that. Possibly, you know, there was some kind of um, something that involved his father as well. But to me, and here is the real point. This is not just a distraction from the kitchen table issues that Americans are screaming out for help on. It's a distraction from the real problem with China 
which is that the Democrats are soft on China, both in terms of foreign policy and in terms of domestic policy. China is our number one adversary and they are stealing our jobs. I mean, you know, 2% of our GDP is, is imports and exports with China, right? They're, all of these, what used to be great working class jobs that secure a middle class lifestyle have been exported to China and manufacturing continues to be done there, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's, you know, electronics, batteries, every Tesla battery. So to me, like, there's a much bigger problem here, which is that the Democrats do not have a China policy that is good for the working class. They have a China policy that rewards the elites. The guy who was really good on this was Donald Trump. And it just kind of sucks that he was so good on this one issue. And he's, you know, so determined to destroy his own legacy. And so to me, pinning it on President Biden, pinning it on hunter is that you know it's like saying this is the corruption no the corruption goes much deeper well i mean they can do multiple things right they can hold investigations on hunter biden they could you know theoretically uh, work on the issues they just outlined they can and i I hope they do to me the the much more important investigations to be held by republicans taking the house are investigations about the pandemic about um, our funding of -of gain-of-function research about connections to the Wuhan lab, you know, Dr. Fauci, on, on that front, on the what did we fund, not the, right, I disagree with his, what his recommendations, et cetera, you know, we're not going to investigate people for having had wrong uh, guidance, but we should investigate them for, for funding, for these serious concerns people have um, that I, I absolutely share that this really could have come from a lab and could have been based on research that should not have been done. That, I think, is a very uh, crucial grounds for an investigation for Republicans to lead. I, I hope they throw massive effort into that. Um, it's only a shame uh, Senator Rand Paul is in the Senate rather than the House, because he, he's been, I, I think, so good uh, questioning Fauci on those subjects. Um, they Look, they should do the, I think they should do a, a, good, a, a good and thorough Hunter Biden investigation as well. It's something they promised a lot of people who voted for them. And given how the FBI treated the story, I, I think that gave the invest, gives the investigation some legitimacy. That's really what I care about. It, like, what is law enforcement? Um, how are they operating? Are they, were they engaged in a political malfeasance? Because then that goes to a lot of what's happening with the Mar-a-Lago investigation, with the Russia investigation, with so many other things. There's no trust of top of, of law enforcement, of national security advisors. These people seem very partisan. They've gotten a lot of things wrong. I want to know more about that. I don't care, and I think the vast majority of Americans don't care if it, all it is is that Hunter Biden is a drug addict and that his father had some compassion for him. Like I, I don't even, I mean, I don't th- even think those drugs should be illegal. So I, I have no issue there. Did he try to lobby his dad? Even that, well, he's not a, you know, he should not be a public official, but Hunter Biden is not a public official. It only matters if Joe Biden was, you know, did something diplomatically because of, of Hunter Biden's leveraging. And nobody's really come close to demonstrating them yet. We'll, we'll see. But to me, the important thing is, is what, you know, what was the FBI doing with respect to all of this? I hear all that. And I but yeah, I still feel that, you know, in the divide between the Republicans donor class and their voter class, this is like red meat for the donor class. Hmm. Um, the voter class, I think, is much less focused on revenge and much less focused on this. It might be important. I'm not saying it's not important, yeah. 
But I'm saying for this to be the thing they're focused on out of the gate, this is why they didn't get more of a majority Hmm. because people just don't trust them to have a plan to make their lives better. You can't put a Hunter Biden investigation into your car and make it drive, right? You can't put a Hunter Biden laptop investigation into your pot and make chicken soup. You know, it's just... Yeah, I agree with that. I don't know if this is a I wouldn't say this one is like a donor class versus voter class. It's definitely a it's a consumer of very right wing media class issue, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily like I don't think there are probably a lot of high profile Republican donors who care about this either. Maybe there are some. It's people very uh, like hyper partisan paying attention to um, conservative media, I think probably care about this. But you're right. That's not the same thing as saying, you know, working class people who are independent minded but are coming to Republicans for policy solutions because they're disaffected with Democrats. Is this something they care about? No. So I, I do I do take your point on that. So, but we'll, we'll have to see, obviously, how it unfolds. It will be interesting. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. A new investigation has opened up into the parent company of Ticketmaster. In a report by the New York Times Live Nation, the parent company of Ticketmaster was revealed to be being looked into by the Department of Justice for alleged antitrust violations. The company is in the spotlight after Ticketmaster Systems crashed for fans trying to buy Taylor Swift concert presale tickets. Ticketmaster says it received 3.5 billion requests last week with respect to Taylor Swift. The report also says that the DOJ has recently contacted music venues and players to ask about Live Nation's operations and potential monopoly over the industry. In 2010, Live Nation and Ticketmaster merged with approval from the DOJ. Since the merger, the company, now known as Live Nation Entertainment, has become one of the largest live entertainment businesses. And on Friday, the company put out a statement on their website in regards to the antitrust laws investigation with, quote, as we have stated many times in the past, Live Nation takes its responsibilities under the antitrust laws seriously and does not engage in behaviors that could justify antitrust litigation, let alone orders that would require it to alter or fundamental business practices. So, hmm. Robbie, as a libertarian, what is the libertarian take on <laughs> antitrust in this situation? Well, look, I, I mean, in my antitrust takes in general are probably pretty contrary to actually yours and Brianna's and probably a lot of our viewers in that I tend to think uh, bringing the government in to you know, tell businesses how to run things or break them up uh, does not actually devolve to the benefit of customers, consumers, etc. That said, I've heard tons of, of complaints with uh, Live Nation Ticketmaster uh, from a lot of people. I don't go to a lot of concerts. I don't purchase uh, tickets this way. So I personally have not dealt with this problem, but that is not to say that it isn't a problem. Uh, did, did you have issues procuring your T-Swift tickets, Bacha? <laughs> I was not one of the, um, what was it, 3 billion people, um, um, you know, screaming at my laptop over Taylor Swift. Um, Here's my problem with this. You know, the DOJ is very busy and (laughs) not in any way to, um, you know, besmirch or look down upon Taylor Swift's fan base. But there are monopolies in this country that are actually making things much worse for Americans in a very real way. You know, the monopoly of meat processing plants, for example, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. five companies, huge conglomerates own all of the meat packing, all of the meat processing plants that is hurting 
cattle ranchers. That is hurting the consumer. I mean, that is hurting basically every American who's struggling to pay their um, their their grocery bill. Where is the DOJ on this? You know, the, mm-hmm. the one issue that they have the time to look into happens to be like just to me, it's such a, a kind of a luxury good, you know, a Taylor Swift ticket. I, I So I feel a little bit confused by this. And again, it's like the Democrats telling on themselves they're begging you to acknowledge who their new base is, Mm. right? And it's the kind of people who would go crazy over not being able to get a ticket to see Taylor Swift. You're saying T-Swift is not a kitchen table (laughs) issue, Batya? Well, and with respect to the the meat uh, packing industry, if DOG investigated that, they'd inevitably find out, right, that it has a lot to do, I I don't know the specifics, but I can imagine has a lot to do with uh, favorable subsidies or licensing or regulations for specific firms that outside competitors would never be able to compete with. And so there's protectionism that holds up that industry. That's something we, you know, we, uh, I remember finding out during the, uh, the, the baby formula shortage that like, mm-hmm. well, why can't we just import safe formula from Europe? I'm like, well, it has a different label, so we can't do that. I'm like, Babies are starving because they can't get the formula, and you're worried about like a labeling issue. Like that's how our government approaches these things. So, um, so th- that's well, in those just cases. to defend just to defend them on that front. I mean, I think that there was tainted baby milk brought in, I yeah. believe, actually from China. So, you know, that, there it seems to me like you know that that kind you want a sort of very, very, very high standard when it comes to food you're feeding babies. Um, but I, but, but I, I think you're right. You know, obviously, it didn't happen naturally that these you know huge corporations managed to get a monopoly on. On, on meatpacking. Um, um, I, I just, I, I'm so glad that we were able to take this story about Taylor Swift and turn it into one about, you know, how unjust it is that, you know, Americans can't have easier access to, to better meat. Um, so congratulations on that. Well, and before we go, isn't it interesting that, so I didn't, I, again, I don't know a lot about this situation because I don't buy a lot of concert tickets, but this merger between these major um, firms, Ticketmaster and Live Nation, took place um, during the Obama years. And more and more, it seems like a lot of specific mergers um, took place then in the tech sector and were not scrutinized very much, even though ostensibly progressives were in charge. I, well, I guess if Brianna's here, she'd say, Barack Obama's no real progressive, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe she'd be right based on the fact that a lot of these consolidations happened uh, with Democrats uh, asleep at the wheel. So it's very interesting. Yeah, and it's another topic um, Glenn Greenwald is very passionate about is the way in which um, the Obama administration went after journalists. Um, and, and, you know, and I think it just shows you that so often you look at President Obama, you look at President Trump, right, and, and in their demeanor and in what they represented at a very shallow level, you know, one was the leftist progressive Democrat and the other was the, you know, the, the, the conservative Republican. But if you look at so many of their policies, policies. If, if you if you gave a list of policies for each of them, you would think that Trump was the Democrat and Obama was the Republican. I mean, just looking at things like, you know, treatment of journalists, mm-hmm. um, looking at President Obama's overseeing of, you know, the 2008 um, um, financial crisis that resulted in this foreclosure disaster that affected millions and millions of Americans, which is something that actually Fox News has now been harping on, right? How come none of those crooks went to jail? You know, so there's been this real scrambling of the categories of American politics. You look at what President Trump did. He released 5,000 black men from prison. He got rid of NAFTA. He enforced the border, all of which were things that you would have thought would have been on the progressive agenda. So interesting times we're living in. Very much so. Well, we'll be back with more Rising right after this. 
Stay with us. Brooklyn Nets star guard Kyrie Irving made his return to the court on Sunday after being suspended for tweeting out a link to an anti-Semitic film. Irving served an eight-game suspension and has since apologized for his tweets. In an interview with Sportsnet New York, Irving said, I just really want to focus on the hurt that I caused or the impact that I made within the Jewish community, putting some type of threat or assumed threat on the Jewish community. I just want to apologize deeply for all my actions for the time that it's been since the post was first put up. He added that he had very moving, very impactful conversations with several Jewish community leaders, finally figuring out why his initial post had a negative effect on people. So we talked about this on the show last week. And look, I, I, that film is clearly very kooky and conspiratorial and anti-Semitic. It's like a Hebrew nationalist, uh, the black Hebrew, Hebrew Israelites group. And Kyrie Irving has, you know, it said crazy th- he said crazy things in the past. I'm in this weird place where, like, yes, the thing, that movie is bad. He shouldn't hold those views. I guess he should apologize for them. Also, I don't really care if a sports figure thinks crazy things. Probably a lot of them do because they're not in careers of ideas, like even more so than Kanye West, who I guess is at least in a kind of creative, expressive medium. Um, If everyone, you know, the the stick to sports thing is probably good advice, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it's bad. I guess it's good that he apologized. I don't know that it's sincere, right? It was kind of probably extorted out of him so he could continue making money. But uh, it's just kind of like, uh, I don't know. Do I need everybody who thinks something crazy to be really sorry for it if they have nothing to do with public policy or even expression? I don't know. What do you think, Bacha? Well, it's so interesting because as you were speaking, I was thinking of how there are so many, um, you know, the whole like, you know, shut up and dribble is considered to be almost like have risen to the level of a slur, right? Like, you know, no, we have a right to have our opinions, right? Like, don't tell us, you know, not to support Black Lives Matter, not to support this or that cause. You know, we want to have a voice in the public sphere, right, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you know, well, you know, but this is not really your job to be right about things, right? Right. These are really bad opinions. If they want to say, no, we get to express our opinions, then people are going to go, okay, well, that opinion is really dumb and bad (laughs) and obviously stupid, and you're going to be held accountable for it so sorry it's like it's not a close call whether whether any of these I mean he had some uh, affection for Alex Jones in the past and in the past these are very crazy things but again I don't care if a basketball player holds crazy views because I don't need like everyone I who's who's contribution to society doesn't have to be perfect, I don't think, which is we're kind of, I fear we're veering into a place where that's the standard and it will not be healthy, especially when you get to then the canceling people on, uh, on from, you know, from banking institutions or from GoFundMes or the, you know, some of the or PayPal, if you ever shared misinformation, all that kind of stuff that is so Orwellian and creepy. And I think we're all pretty against, this is obviously different than that, but I don't know. I, I find myself unsatisfied with my own opinions on it because at the end of the day, I just don't like love forced apologies or whatever because it is forced. Like, did he actually change his mind? I don't know. And do we care? I don't know. Well, so to, I feel a little bit like the opposite. Like, I like I feel like it does seem to me like his apology is really sincere. It does seem to me that he was finally convinced why the film was problematic. At the same time, I really wish that it wasn't extorted from him. Like I, I, I feel both that there is a rise in anti-Semitism. It is translating into actual anti-Semitic attacks 
But on the other hand, I feel so uncomfortable with, um, you know, the Jews kind of, you know, coming for black celebrities in this way when they don't hold political office. And like you said, like, shouldn't they have the right to be, you know, wrong about things? Um, so I, I really do see both sides of it. On the one hand, like these are hateful views. They have a real world impact. Yep. On the other hand, these people are not like paid to be right about things. Yeah. And, you know, it, you know, it, is it really Kanye's fault that there have been this like slew of anti-Semitic attacks? Like, no, you know, unless he's actually calling for physical violence, right. that's not incitement. So, you know, so I, I do, I think it's really complicated. On the one hand, you want to say there's no room for hate speech against any group. On the other hand, I think even the policing of it to this degree can have this kind of rebound effect where people are like, oh, you see, they do control everything, right? So it's a really complicated topic where, like, on the one hand, you want people to not, you know, have these hateful mm -hmm. views. On the other hand, you don't want to have to, like, force them in these very public ways at gunpoint of their career and of a billion dollars to not have them. Yeah. Very well said, Bacha. Thank you for that. <laughs> Stay with us. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Following a disastrous midterm election showing, Arizona's attorney general ordered Maricopa County officials to submit a report on its botched handling of November 8th election before anything can be certified. Carrie Lake, the Trump-endorsed Republican candidate for Arizona governor, lost her race to Democratic opponent Katie Hobbs with 49.7% and 50.3% of the votes, respectively. Her campaign is now calling for a redo of the election following the ballot printing issues at about one-third of polling locations. Carrie tweeted, quote, I'm so sorry they did this to us, Arizona. We will not let them get away with disenfranchising our vote. If you experienced issues on election day, please submit them at save aznow.com. So, Robbie, where are you on this story? I mean, it's just, you know, it's not going to be, look, she lost, um, Carrie Lake did, she lost by, you know, leaning into um, Donald Trump's preferred narrative that, you know, pushing her and Blake Masters, the Senate candidate, to emphasize an issue that do that is just a loser with uh, the voters you, they needed to win over. So uh, I, I think the only surprising thing really about her her losing is that the polling did have her doing better than than she did at the end of the day. Um, in terms of the you know the election, what happened in Arizona, I think this is totally unacceptable. And like most people of all ideological persuasions, <laughs> are not satisfied with how long it took to determine the outcome in uh, in Nevada and Arizona. And, and this is just this absolutely should be investigated and like everything that went wrong, because it, it causes a lack of faith in the outcome. You know, given all the concerns we have by you know, a lot of Republicans who bought into what Trump said, but also, you know, some Democrats and some you know, very important, high profile uh, liberal media people who will you know, when they lose, will say, oh, well, you know, it got stolen from Stacey Abrams. It got stolen from Hillary, that kind of thing. There's a lot of dangerous election denying rhetoric on all sides of this. Uh, but then there are these incidents, these mistakes that play into those ideas. So they, they have to be dealt with because they can't keep happening. Um, it's just it just can't keep going wrong like this. So there should absolutely be investigations. Yeah, I mean, it's such a it's such a tough one on the one hand, like just concede, you know, like just like let's just be a nation where that happens. And I was very gratifying to see that even except for Carrie Lake, I believe all the MAGA candidates did concede 
um, when they lost. But then you look at something like this, 49% to 50%, it's a very small margin. And we, you know, I mean, we all saw people posting on Twitter videos of people, you know, being told, oh, you know, there's a chance that your ballot will be called wrong. And so you, you know, it's, it's a very tricky situation. I think you're right. Like the move here is concede and we'll do an investigation. Let's commit to doing better, you know, but what do you say to the people who are standing online, who are having those problems? You know, it's very hard to say to them, no, trust the system going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today, Bacha. We so appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. And thank you all for tuning in. We had some technical difficulties today, so you may have noticed there was a slightly shorter show, but we will be back to full strength uh, tomorrow. Uh, Brianna will be here as well. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere you listen to podcasts and also on Roku and other streaming services. And I'll see you back here tomorrow. Goodbye.